If you take your Bibles, turn along with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. We've been studying Habakkuk together and we've seen that Habakkuk has a bad case of the blues. We've seen that he's struggling to find answers to some of life's biggest questions. Lord, where are you when I'm hurting? I cry out to you, but there seems to be no help, no answer. No one's listening. I ask for help, but you seem to do nothing. Lord, where are you when I'm hurting? Then last week we saw the question, Lord, why do bad things happen to good people? Why are your chosen people suffering in this situation? Why are we, your people, on the bottom rung of the ladder once again? Why do bad things happen to good people? Today we're going to see Habakkuk ask another question. Lord, why do good things happen to bad people? Now he's already asked this question in passing. Back in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, he declares this about the Lord. Lord, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously. Why are you treating with favor the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who are ready to besiege us and carry us away into captivity? Why are you treating them so well when it would seem you're treating us so poorly? Lord, why do you allow good things to happen to bad people? Why would God seem to prosper the wicked Why do those who seem most hostile to God and His purposes seem to live such carefree lives of abundance and prosperity and success? Why are the rich, the famous, the powerful, and the influential so often the very same people who trample upon God's name and scorn God's people? And all this while the faithful seem to struggle so much in life. Lord, why do good things happen to bad people? Well, it's nothing new. It's not a new question to ask. It's one we've probably struggled with and wrestled with at some point in our lives. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed about this question of why do good things happen to bad people. The problem of why God allows the wicked to prosper is not a new one, he says. We in this 20th century, he was writing then, have been foolish enough to imagine that our problems are exceptional and peculiar. They are not. We are experiencing only what God's people have experienced many a time before. It is well to remember that history repeats itself, and so get rid of the foolish, inflated opinion that we moderns have of ourselves. Our perplexities are by no means new. There are many people today who feel that they cannot be Christians because of the intellectual difficulties raised by the apparent frustration of history. But this problem is as old as mankind itself and has perplexed people right from the beginning. So let us not think that we are new or special and realize that this is an old question that the Bible speaks to. It's a question that is as old as faith itself. Lord, why do you allow good things to happen to wicked people? 
In our text this morning, we're going to see the Lord's answer to this question that comes in the form of a series of five divine woes. Woes that are uttered over the wicked. Divine woes to those who are rebellious. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, I'll read through verse 20. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 5. This is the Lord speaking through an oracle to Habakkuk, and he says, Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high. To be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no one, no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord now and ask him for help in understanding his holy word. Gracious Father, God, thank you that you have not left us in our rebellion and wickedness and darkness. But you have shown the light of your word and the light of your son into the darkness of our hearts. And that light has pierced that darkness. And that sun has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Father God, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you don't leave us where we are. Thank you for your grace and mercy in receiving our questions, the things we don't understand in this life. You're patient with us. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our questions. But Lord, we pray that you would direct us to your word for answers this morning and that we might rest and trust 
in you and your promise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? Well, just as we needed to sort of readdress the question of why do bad things happen to good people, we need to address this question of why do good things happen to bad people. We need to break it apart a little bit. We need to remember that God does not treat us immediately as our sins deserve. We're all born sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. So in a sense, there are no good people. We're all bad people. And yet good things happen to us. Good things happen to us before we ever came to Christ. You were born. That's a good thing. You were given life and breath and all things. That's a good thing. This is what God does. He gives good gifts even to those who are undeserving of it. We were undeserving of any of God's good gifts. We were undeserving of anything from Him except His immediate divine judgment for our sin and rebellion. That's what we deserved. That's what we had coming to us. But God in His mercy gave us so much more. And most of all, He gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. God in His mercy and His common grace gives us life and breath and all things. Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. Aren't you grateful this morning that the Lord is good to all? That He was good to you? Even before you knew Him? Even before you knew to praise Him? But God is also merciful and kind. Even to the worst of sinners. Among us, as Jesus said, God sends both sunshine and rain upon the just and the unjust. He holds back his hand of judgment. He doesn't punish sin immediately. He leaves room for repentance. He leaves room for mercy. He gives food and clothing and sustains the life of even the worst among humanity. This is all part of his mercy. And we ought to be thankful for it. This is Thanksgiving week. We have much to be thankful to the Lord for. And that even includes our time before Christ, that God was merciful and gracious to us and he didn't give us what our sins deserved immediately, that he gave us clothing and food and sun and rain and all the things that we needed and sustained us even before we knew him. Luke 6.35 says, For God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's the nature of our God. He is kind even to ungrateful and evil men. But Habakkuk's question goes far beyond the bare necessities of life. Habakkuk sees the wicked Babylonians at the top of human civilization. They are at the tip of the spear. God has raised them up for such a time as this. And Habakkuk is left scratching his head. He doesn't understand it. Why would God bless and bless so abundantly such a wicked people as the Babylonians? Why would he do it? Why would God allow the wicked to prosper? And we can see it too in our own day. Evil seems to go unchecked. Those who seem to hate God and His Word rise to positions of power and influence and often experience incredible success. So why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? Well, when asking this question, I think from this passage we can see three things we ought to remember when we see the wicked prospering. 
Three things to call to mind, to remind ourselves of when we see the wicked prospering. First of all, remember the certain judgment of the Lord. Remember that God is going to judge every sin and every sinner. God has told Habakkuk that he's going to send the Babylonians as an instrument of correction to the nation of Judah. Judah, as we looked at the history of that little country there, made up the two tribes in the southern part of Israel. Judah had a long history of sin and rebellion with only occasional moments and glimmers of hope of repentance and faith and obedience. And as a result, God said he was going to correct and discipline his people, his sinful people, by sending in this pagan nation of Babylon. The wickedness and cruelty of the Babylonians was legendary. They were a fearsome army known for their barbaric cruelty. They employed horrific tactics against their enemies, including dismembering, skinning, decapitating, impaling, and burning their victims. A common tactic also included erecting siege walls, cutting off whole cities and populations from food and water and other necessities until the inhabitants either surrendered or died of starvation, but not before oftentimes resorting to cannibalism and other horrific scenes. The Assyrians were, of course, the dominant force before the Babylonians came on the scene. The Assyrians were the ones who, about a hundred years earlier, had led off captive the ten northern tribes of Israel and defeated them. The Assyrians, like the Babylonians, were known for their barbarity and cruelty in war. Listen to these Testimonies from Assyrian kings, and they could have been simply copied and pasted when it comes to the Babylonians. They were the same sort of people committing the same sorts of what we would call war war crimes. But there was no Geneva Convention, right? There were no rules of war and rules of engagement and way to treat prisoners and things like that. Listen to these Assyrian kings boasting of their bloodshed. I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. I slaughtered their inhabitants in great numbers. I carried off their spoil, the cities I burned with fire. Here's another one. Many captives from among them I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some, I cut off their hands or their fingers, or from others, I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many, I put out their eyes. Then listen to this one Assyrian king, and what he did to the defeated king who he captured. He says, I pierced the defeated king's chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope. I put a dog chain upon him and made him occupy a kennel in front of the east gate of Nineveh. This is what they did. This was common practice. This is the wickedness of the Assyrians and the wickedness of the Babylonians, which Habakkuk knew all too well. And yet God was seeming to give them the upper hand, giving them success and victory. How could God allow such a wicked people to be blessed with such victories? 
In verse 5, Habakkuk, recording the vision of the Lord, describes the Babylonians and others like them as being haughty. A people full of pride. The sin of pride of those who are characterized by it was described already in chapter 2 and verse 4. If you look back with me, just a verse. This is a key verse in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So here we have the proud contrasted with the righteous. The believing contrasted with the unbelieving. The proud have crooked souls, but the righteous will live by faith, trusting in God. So the Babylonians are a faithless, prideful, soul-crooked people. Verse 5 describes these Babylonians further as being insatiable in their appetites. As the grave never is satisfied, but keeps claiming bodies, so the Babylonians are never satisfied in their quest for domination. If you want job security, work at a funeral home. Because you're never going to be short of work in this, this side of eternity. As the grave, so the Babylonians. As the grave is never satisfied, so the Babylonians are never, never satisfied in their quest for domination. They can never get enough wealth, never get enough conquest, never enough spoils of war, never enough victory, never enough violence and death. They hunger for it and they must be satisfied. Beginning in verse 6 is God's answer to the way of the wicked. God says their downfall is coming. Woe to him who increases what is not his. This is the first of five woes uttered by the Lord over the Babylonians and by extension over all wicked people. Of all time and all ages. The word woe is an interjection. Interjection. And it can mean anything like ha or aha. It's almost like gotcha. It's a taunt with a prediction of impending doom. Woe to you. The word was often used to introduce a statement of divine judgment and condemnation. I really like what O. Palmer Robertson has done here with the the outline of these woes. And I'm going to use his outline here briefly. I've included this in the church app. If you follow the church app under sermon notes, you can find these written out there for you. But... He's, he's identified these woes this way and titled them this way. The pillager pillaged in verses 6 through 8. The woe of the fortified dismantled in verses 9 through 11. The civilized demoralized in verses 12 through 14. The shameless defamed or shamed in verses 15 through 17. And the idolatrous made powerless in verses 18 through 19. Now, you'll notice in, in that, those descriptions of these five woes that there's a sense of irony. There's poetic justice in all of this. The conqueror has been conquered. The one who has caused others to experience unspeakable suffering is going to experience 
unspeakable suffering themselves. First, we see the woe of the pillager pillaged. Verses 6 through 8. The Babylonians take what does not belong to them. And the victims cry out, how long? Habakkuk cried out, how long? You remember that in the opening verses of Habakkuk. How long, Lord, is this going to go on? How long are you going to just sit idly by and not do anything? The victims cry out, how long? The Babylonians make themselves rich with loans requiring conquered peoples and nations to pay heavy taxes and duties and tribute to the conquering king. But God says, woe to you. The nations you have looted will rise up against you and they are going to loot you in return. As you have given, so you're going to get. It's going to come back to you. The pillager is pillaged. Next, the fortified is dismantled. Verses 9 through 11. The Babylonians built palaces in high places in hopes of being protected. But they've been unknowingly sinning against themselves. They've been stacking up wrath for the day of wrath. And it's going to result in their own demise. Stone and beam are going to come crashing down on them. Stones that they've erected and beams that they've put up are going to sing a taunt song against them and they're going to come crashing down on them and going to be part of their demise. The fortified are dismantled. Next, the civilized are demoralized in verses 12 through 14. The Babylonian civilization was built upon the back of violence and bloodshed. And like a fire that is consumed overnight, they're going to be consumed overnight. It will all come to nothing. They're going to be like smoke in the wind, absolutely disappearing and dissipating. Next, we see the shameless defamed or shamed in verses 15 through 17. The Babylonians had forced others to drink strong drink and and spike their drinks resulting in shame and nakedness and adultery and all kinds of horrible immorality. But they are going to be forced to drink the cup of the Lord's right hand, the cup of wrath and judgment. And so they will be brought to shame in the day of judgment. The Lord is going to make them drink the cup of His wrath and drink it down to the full. And then finally, the idolatrous are made powerless in verses 18 and 19. They worship false gods and idols, idols and false gods that they've made with their own hands, and it's going to be exposed for what it is, emptiness and futility and nothingness. For their gods cannot save them from the judgment that awaits. Their gods are not living. They're useless and helpless in the day of judgment. So these five woes uttered by the Lord over the Babylonians and over all the wicked underscore the certainty of the judgment that awaits the wicked. God is going to judge every sin and every sinner. Listen again as Lloyd-Jones comments. Woe is declared upon the ways of all opposed to God. They are doomed. They may have great temporary success and we must prepare for that. 
They may apparently bestride the universe, but as certainly as their star arose, it will descend. The woe, the judgment, the doom of God upon the unrighteous is certain. God is coming, and he's coming with judgment in his hand. The book of Revelation records that that great Babylon, the city of Babylon that represents the city of man, that represents all rebellion, that it's going to be defeated and put down by God as he pours out his wrath upon sinners and the wicked. So knowing the certain judgment of the Lord, what should the wicked do? Well, as John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath that is to come. Flee to the cross where Jesus Christ himself, the sinless one, bore the wrath of God in his own body on the cross. Jesus, who never sinned once and didn't deserve any of God's judgment for he was holy and righteous completely. Nevertheless, took upon himself our sin and our debt and our guilt and therefore became the focus of God's wrath justly poured out on our sin, our guilt, and our debt. Jesus paid it all. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through faith in him. God has graciously provided a way of escape from his certain judgment that is to come. Trust in Jesus today. If you're not sure you're a Christian, if you're here and you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, trust in Christ today. Don't wait. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. If the events of last night teach us anything, we're not guaranteed another moment. Trust in Jesus Christ. Flee the wrath to come. Christian, know that God's judgment is coming. It may seem to delay. It may not seem to be on your timetable, but rest assured, God's judgment is on the way and justice will be done. Remember the certain judgment of God. Secondly, remember the soon coming of the Lord. Chapter 2 and verse 14. Remember the soon coming of the Lord. Now as he's in the midst of uttering this woe against Babylon for building a civilization upon violence and bloodshed, the Lord reveals that this civilization is going to go up like a puff of smoke. Present one minute, but gone the next. But unlike the fleeting nature of Babylon, one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, it's going to be complete and total. There will be no wickedness. There will be no evil done. Because the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And the Lord will see to it and make sure that it happens. God reveals to Habakkuk and to all of us that there's another world coming. Amen? A new world in which righteousness dwells. A new world in which the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is as complete and total as water is wet. How wet is water? Is wet. <laughs> So it will be. The knowledge of the glory of God will cover all the earth. Everyone will know the Lord. Today, 
the Babylonians may be advancing. And indeed, as we look around, it appears that they are. Today, the wicked may be momentarily prospering, but they are all going to pass on like the drying up of a morning mist, and they will be replaced. Replaced by a world in which the knowledge of the glory of God is as complete as the waters covering the seas. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 73. I want you to see a parallel to the book of Habakkuk, where the psalmist asks many of the same questions that Habakkuk is asking. Why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? Why does God let the wicked prosper? Psalm 73, verse 1. Are you there? I hear the pages turning. I love that. Thank you. Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's good. The psalmist right out of the gate says, this I know to be true about God. He's good to us. And yet I have my questions. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. I look around and I see these wicked people and they're doing great. You know, they're, they're leaving their pictures on Facebook and Instagram and they're traveling the world and enjoying life. They're not in trouble as other men. Verse 12, skip down to verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastised every morning. Not only are they living their best life now, I'm, you know, working two shifts just to eat bologna. I'm struggling. Skip down to verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 17 is the the clear shift, the clear change. He's just looking around the world, and as he looks around the world, he doesn't understand. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. It all changed when he got his eyes off of the world around him and back onto the Lord himself. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, until I came under the teaching and the sound of God's word, until I came to see the person of God and his holiness and his justice and his mercy and his grace, until I put my eyes on the Lord, then I perceived their end. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Now what changed? What changed is what he was looking at. What changed is what his focus was. Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom and his righteousness. What changed was he, looked, he was looking before on the present success and apparent ease of the wicked. But when he looked to God, he saw there was a new future coming. A different world that was going to play out. And justice was going to come to each of the wicked. And their judgment was sure. 
There's a whole new world coming. And when the wicked prosper, remember their judgment is sure and remember that the Lord is coming back soon to establish his kingdom in which the glory of the Lord is as pervasive as the waters on the sea. Thirdly, finally, remember the present glory of the Lord. This comes at the end of this chapter, verse 20. Remember the present glory of the Lord. In this last woe, the Lord has been sharing about the uselessness of the Babylonian pantheon, the deities that they worshipped, which were idols, speechless and lifeless. The Lord says that its maker trusts in his own handiwork. That's the nature, that's the root of idolatry. We make a God out of our own handiwork. Whether it's an idol of wood or stone or an idol of wealth or fame or worldly success or entertainment or whatever it may be. We always craft our own idols and they are all equally incapable of saving us or satisfying us. But in contrast to the idols of the wicked comes the revelation of the true and living God in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. He is alive and well and ruling. Our God is living and is in his holy temple. A temple not made with hands because heaven and earth cannot contain him. He who made the heavens and the earth cannot be contained by heaven and earth. Our God is alive and well and ruling even now over all things from his holy temple. Because that is true, all the earth is commanded to be silent before him. A holy hush is to pervade the earth in the presence of the great king who is in his holy temple. To be still and know that he is God. To sit in silence and to contemplate the glories of his person. The presence of so much sin and suffering in this world leaves us with so many questions. We, and we want answers to our questions. It's not wrong to have questions. It's not wrong to seek answers to our questions. And we've contemplated a few of those questions so far in Habakkuk. But ultimately, when we gain a true vision for who God is, we are moved not in His presence to ask questions, but to sit in profound silence before Him. Now, that's precisely where Job ended up. He had a lot of questions, but he ended up with his hand covering his mouth. In Job chapter 40, after Job has asked the Lord many questions, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. So now the, the Almighty is asking Job questions when Job has been asking the Almighty questions. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have nothing to say in your presence and before your questions. Who am I to speak or to even ask you questions? 
In this world of suffering and sadness, we will inevitably have our questions. And it's okay to ask those questions, but ultimately our questions must lead us to God himself as the ultimate answer to all of life's toughest questions. He is the answer, ultimately. It's when we can sit in silence before him, content with him as the answer to all of our toughest questions, that we're living by faith and not by sight. Lord, I don't need the answers. I just need you. As we sit in silence before him, continually in awe of our great and mighty God and his unimaginable grace toward us, shown most clearly and profoundly through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are the living God. You are no stone God. You are no wooden God. You are a living God. And you are in your holy temple and you are ruling and reigning over all things. We confess, Lord, the world around us oftentimes looks like it's spinning out of control, but we know it's not. You are on the job. You have a purpose and a plan in all that happens and all that takes place. And it is a good and high and holy purpose. We have our questions. We don't understand why one thing would happen and another thing wouldn't. And you're patient with us and you welcome us to ask those questions. But at the end of the day, Lord, we know that you are the ultimate answer to all our questions. And perhaps the best thing we can do is stop asking questions and simply sit in silence before you. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to bear the just judgment that our sins deserved. Your judgment is still coming, it still awaits. I pray, Lord, that if any here are not sure that they're Christians, Lord, they may flee from the wrath to come and run to the cross of Jesus Christ and trust Him alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.